Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can hear more about and learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, zhanstation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Whitwan, and I'm Ali Kasmi. Ali, this is our twenty-fourth episode, and we'd like to thank all of you. For your continued support, you know if you like the show, share with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They offer places to leave reviews, and we really appreciate it. Making the podcast is pure love, not profitable. People ask me all the time, "It's like, oh, how much money are you guys making on this?" And the answer is zero. <laughs> so, if you'd like to leave us a donation or help us at all, Uh, you can do so on Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash Shanghai Zan. We'll put the link in the show notes. Today we are going to discuss how we can reimagine workplace habits and environments in Shanghai under the new normal of potential future lockdowns, and how working from home and staggered work hours at the office will impact how companies, big and small, will engage and interact with staff. Now, for the rest of the world, this is kind of an old thing, but you know, in China now, it's starting to come into light given the lockdowns, and people are starting to see alternative work experiences. We know that China never stops innovating, and thanks to commonly acceptable technology platforms, we can now see a whole host of potential options that may, in the end, transform how we work in the city, and. We may even eventually decouple ourselves from the big tower, multi-storied offices with companies that pack as many people into a crowded space as possible. And I remember back in my WPP days, it was three square meters per person, where the global accepted practice was ten. So it's definitely a pack 'em in mentality. Ali, at WPP, is it status like now? Are people back to the office and regularly, or is it staggered work hours? What's the status? It's quite busy.、Uh, the only additional line that we need to、uh, fall into is the one that takes us straight to the the COVID kiosk, where we get ourselves tested. But other than that, it's business as usual. Lines、um, on the way up、uh, to your floor at the office.、It、doesn't really feel like we're in、uh, in in COVID season. It feels quite normal,、uh, and and offices are all packed. Interesting. So interesting topic to discuss today, and to do that, we are honored to have Dominique Penaloza. Dominique is a serial entrepreneur and has lived in Shanghai for 16 years. He was previously the founder of professional social platform Youshi before moving into a role of chief technology and innovation officer at Naked Hub, which is a Shanghai-based company where he, his team, the technology products they built, and the business. Model innovation those technology products enabled resulted in WeWork acquiring Naked Hub for 400 million U.S. dollars in 2018. Amazing. Dominique was WeWork's head of technology and innovation for Greater China until 2020, and now he's back in his entrepreneurial roots, exploring various business opportunities and advising companies in the areas of future of work. Future of mobility and the intersection of technology and real estate. Dominique, welcome to Shanghai Zan. 
Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bryce. Thank you, Ali. Thanks for having me. In addition, we'd like to say that this episode is sponsored by Campaign Asia, our friends at Campaign Asia. So uh, just to start off the conversation, Dominique, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you end up in China and becoming an expert in the convergence of technology and workspace innovation? Well, even though my name is Dominic Penaloza, I'm actually ethnically Chinese. Uh, our ancestral hometown is called Luotu. Uh, so shout out to Luotu. So uh, my father lives in Shanghai. I came to China first uh, almost 30 years ago to be just to be part of the whole reopening of China as an entrepreneur. And then I've been here either in mainland China or in Hong Kong ever since. Interesting. And could you tell us a little about how you got into the technology and workspace innovation space? Yeah, sure. I've been a so-called serial tech entrepreneur since the beginning of internet. Uh, so I've had uh, several startups, some failures, some successes. Bryce, you mentioned Youshuang, which was a, a Chinese uh, business social network. And actually, the Youshuang experience led me to my fourth startup, and that was Naked Hub. Uh, the connection between those two is that uh, Yosher was a community and a social network of Chinese business people. And in many ways, uh, co-working is too. My friend Grant, who was the main founder of Naked Hub, he reached out to me at the beginning in 2015 and said, uh, let's join forces and let's make an online and offline uh, community for China's business people. And that became a Naked Hub. And so that's how I got into the whole world of um, real estate and workspace. And basically almost for the past six years now have been quite focused on the intersection of technology and real estate and uh, trying to change the world, so to speak, in terms of changing how people consume real estate. Because if you think about it for a minute, it, it really hasn't changed much in the last 100 or even 200 years. And from Naked Hub, you went on to Adam Newman's company, famously known as WeWork. Tell us a little bit about the WeWork story in China. There are WeWorks everywhere in the city. When I was instructing at NYU, we actually were in a WeWork space for the first year and it enabled me to uh, access the network of WeWorks, and I thought it was just an amazing idea. Despite all the hype and everything, that it was just a great idea. And more importantly, I think that there was an amazing cultural connection that WeWork had, that it really solved a problem in Shanghai of putting small, medium businesses in very decent locations next to metro stops and making it really convenient and hip for young people to work at small, medium businesses. Now we're seeing so many WeWork copies in Shanghai now. Tell us about the whole WeWork experience. Uh, what do you think really worked and what didn't work? Happy to. Maybe the a useful place to start is to uh, define a WeWork and co-working or, or separate the two things. Co-working is a business model uh, that can make money and can make a lot of sense. Um, and actually you mentioned one of the key reasons why already earlier, Bryce, when you said it, it's actually great for small companies. Um, so co-working as originally conceived was just the idea of smaller companies joining together to share larger office spaces or entire floors of buildings. Not only does it save money for those smaller companies, 
but it solves other problems like the word community. If we had a startup of 10 people, the maximum reach of our company community is 10 people. And um, humans, they just crave a lot more social interaction than that, especially the younger people as, that you just mentioned. Coworking can really offer uh, a better user experience, a better office user experience than renting some very tiny room uh, all by yourself as a company. Um, so co-working is thriving. In many ways, this pandemic of the last two years has even given additional growth and popularity to the flexible workspace models to which co-working belongs. Now, in terms of WeWork, WeWork was one of the first to create a big network of locations and a big brand out of it. By 2015, WeWork was already not only a unicorn, but probably a, a multi-unicorn. And just like every other multi-unicorn success story in the business world globally, uh, whenever something emerges, of course, here in China, there will be uh, many entrepreneurs who are inspired by that to uh, figure out how to innovate that and localize that new business model for the China market. In 2015, there was quite a few companies here in China similar to WeWork in many ways. I think Naked Hub was one of them. Naked Hub, uh, for listeners who may not be so familiar, kind of a strange name. The reason it's called Naked Hub is because of Naked Stables. Luo Xingu. So any, anyone living in Shanghai would, would know Luo Xingu, a fantastic and successful uh, eco-friendly nature retreat, naked resorts, uh, incubated naked hub. And our first location opened at the end of 2015. So it's nothing about stripping or anything like you could, you could go there fully clothed. And <laughs> I'm sure everybody asks you that. So the worst part was uh, when you tried to visit our website, if you don't type very carefully, uh, it was nakedhub.com. But you can imagine if you Google us, uh, <laughs> it might be interesting uh, content in your search results. But uh, rest assured, all the employees and our members were, were fully clothed uh, all the time. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, naked was more uh, speaking to the idea, the lovely idea, actually, of getting back to nature or getting back to your natural self even if you're working in, in the big bad city in like the, in the heart of downtown. And that, that really informed the design aesthetic of Naked Hub interior uh, spaces. Yeah, as you pointed out, we had a lot of great feedback and a lot of passionate fans and passionate uh, Naked Hub members back in the day. And then that transformed into the WeWork era. So what was that like? And I know that you moved to a technology role there. Uh, what were you responsible for? And could you enlighten us on maybe some special innovations that that you created for China that may have not been elsewhere? So WeWork entered China market in the summer of 2016. I think at that time, Naked Hub, we were opening our fourth or fifth location in Shanghai, and uh, they opened up their first one. Approximately, and we competed uh, neck in neck for everything. So when we would pitch a large employer, uh, maybe like a, a, a WPP, we'd find that uh, WeWork people had also been there recently to visit them. When we would negotiate a new building, we would also find that the landlord had also recently spoken with WeWork. So everything was uh, actually being heavily contested back then. I think uh, two years later, by early 2018, both companies had about 20 locations each 
in China and had roughly in the order of 200 employees each. So we're almost the same size at the time in April 2018 when we decided to merge. By merging, we had 40 locations and a big pipeline and quite a lot of funding. Switching from competing against WeWork to becoming part of the WeWork organization was, was a unique experience in and of itself, but an amazing experience from a business perspective in terms of entering the world of so-called hyper-growth strategy, specifically VC-funded business plans with a logic of spending lots and lots of money uh, in order to grow as fast as possible, in order to emerge at the end with uh, the biggest network or the biggest business. The answer for everything was hyper growth. And it's all logical as long as there's large amounts of cash coming. But as you know, as everyone knows now, uh, the, the cash stopped coming in in the third quarter of 2019. Up to that point, we, we from the per, uh, technology perspective, uh, the technology side of the business um, had a lot of resources and a lot of uh, opportunities, big problems to solve. One of the innovations uh, that we actually pioneered here in the China market that eventually became global uh, was this idea of workspace on demand. Uh, so as a subscription business where we work members or Naked Hub members pay a monthly fee to be able to use and, and access um, Naked Hub or WeWork Spaces. We were trying to innovate to see if there was a way to let everyone, like literally everyone, to be able to use our spaces on demand. At this time, uh, if you think back to 2016, uh, everyone who lived in Shanghai or visited Shanghai at that time would, would have seen the the original boom of bike sharing, Mobike, Ofo, and others um, rolling out vast fleets of shared bicycles. It's amazing. I'm personally a big fan of that service, and I really do think it changed the world, making the whole city a lot more user-friendly for all of us who live here, and just making it drop-dead simple and cheap to just pick up a bike anywhere you are and unlock it with ease and then ride it to wherever you want to ride it and just get off and leave it there is uh, this so-called micro mobility is really part of the whole puzzle now of urban planning and life in shanghai and it's and it, it really makes life better um, so we were really inspired by that to see if we could uh, leverage some of these concepts and some of these uh, technologies to make real estate better. In late 2017, Naked Hub, we launched a service called Naked Hub Go. You can find the old TechCrunch article where TechCrunch even went as far as saying that we might start competing with Starbucks in terms of offering the, the public a, a viable so-called third place where um, outside of office and outside of home, they could have a place, a nice environment to do whatever they needed to do. And of course, especially uh, work or meetings. So we launched that, uh, it really worked. People not only uh, used it, but they started doing a lot of repeat visits. Uh, so we were very excited about this uh, new innovation and WeWork got excited about it too. And Adam 
got excited about it as well. And I guess that's part of the whole story of how WeWork came to acquire Naked Hub. Naked Hub Go became WeWork Go. In many ways, it really represents the, the best part of WeWork. It represents the most uh, internet-like business unit or business stream within a WeWork business or any co-working business. I think WeWork Go, which is the China version uh, that worked at, we had over 50 locations here in Shanghai at that time by 20, uh, mid 2019. And that was the sort of uh, parent for what's now called WeWork On Demand, which is a similar concept, uh, not exactly the same, but a similar concept uh, in many countries around the world, including US market and some markets in Europe. Just to illustrate how this actually works, the three of us, we work uh, at a separate company. We have separate offices but we are in a location, let's say in Shanghai, near our homes, or maybe we're in Beijing, and that we could just literally go on our phone and book a, a WeWork space, either a desk or an office, and we don't have to be members. We can just pay as you go, rent it, book it. Is that correct? Exactly, so there's no contract, there's no deposit, there's no nothing. It's just a super easy to use. You just use your WeChat mini program and you make the booking or you just walk in. You check in and check out by scanning a QR code at the entrance of every Naked Hub or every WeWork. The only slight uh, adjustment I'd make to what you said would be uh, you mentioned that you don't need to be a member. Uh, it's slightly different. So you do become a member by virtue of using WeWork Go, you actually become a WeWork Go member. And so uh, we were already getting uh, over 100,000 WeWork Go uh, members by the middle of 2019. It makes a lot of sense. Because then it, it, you're also uh, widening the likelihood of future subscription. It's making uh, the properties accessible. But there was also other services as well, right? I remember a lot of times when we didn't have meeting space in our office, a lot of our clients that were remote would stay at a hotel close to a WeWork and invite us over to a WeWork to conduct meetings or and in many cases, there were day-long meetings. And I remember there was also space for us to, to exercise. Uh, there was space for us to enjoy a cup of coffee. There was space for us to project, take notes. Uh, so it was a very functional space. And I think a lot of clients preferred to be in a WeWork. It was a creative space and four walls of a, a WPP meeting room just didn't give you a lot of room for, uh, it just didn't inspire the same type of response from people that visited. So I remember a lot of our meetings also being held in the WeWork just to add a little bit of color and context to, uh, to, to, to all that was possible. You're absolutely right, Ali, that if it's managed properly, the user experience of stepping into a Naked Hub or a WeWork you should have this kind of almost palpable feeling, uh, human experience of, wow, this space is so filled with energy, filled with human energy. And uh, our community members, uh, our community managers tasked with uh, maintaining that vibe, as well as the physical design of the space and to make it very different than any other office experience. What you're pointing out is a really important fact that um, especially in the 2016 to 2018 timeframe, a vast percentage of the, the city uh, had never heard of WeWork, had never heard of Naked Hub, had never heard of co-working. One very interesting aspect of Naked Hub Go, WeWork Go is to your point, 
that uh, it lowers the bar for the average member of the public to discover what is co-working and what is Naked Hub and what is WeWork. And, and you correctly uh, guessed that actually there was a substantial amount of what, what we internally, we would call that an upgrade or an upsell of someone who discovered a WeWork location using WeWork Go for the very first time. Uh, and that's how they gained entry. They turned out to start using it more and more often. And then they figured out that, well, I guess if I'm going to use this place frequently, maybe I should just buy that membership. If you pay roughly uh, 1800 to 2500 RMB per month for a uh, WeWork standard membership, then you could have 24-7 or you could have unlimited access to any of the WeWork locations uh, around the city. Dominic, uh, I'm curious. So we've gone through maybe two waves now. And how have the requirements for some of the guests, visitors changed or adapted to visitations at, uh, at the WeWork? I think here in Shanghai, the, the regulations are taken extremely seriously. It's not just a matter of being locked down at home or not. When people are not locked down, there's still additional regulations governing uh, what they can and cannot do uh, outside of home. So, uh, for example, a general discouraging of gatherings, for example. So, er, of course, earlier we were talking about how awesome the, the community aspect of co-working is, but if you connect that with the current uh, discouraging of social gatherings, you can see how that would really affect what's happening inside a WeWork or, or any other co-working space for that matter. So I expect it will evolve in line with those uh, guidances and regulations from the local authorities. The event side of the business and of the, the event side of the service will be the last part to rebound. So I guess right now it's, it's not the, the feeling inside the space will be different than it was uh, back in 2019. I imagine a world where both Zoom, maybe Zoom acquires WeWork and you end up with a very, very flexible, I mean, I can totally, WeWork, right? So so creating new ways for people to work together. And if, and if Zoom and WeWork got together, then your meeting space would be completely different. And the type of interaction and collaboration that you had in a physical space would get captured and recorded and published on two into a web-based co-working space where you have another office with a different set of people working on exactly the same problem, working working on a shared problem. So I can see, I mean, I don't know if that was ever explored. Do you think that could have possibly offset the impact of COVID on, a, on the physical side of the business and maybe kind of pushed uh, WeWorked into, into collaborating within an online space or a purely online space that, that could have uh, maybe offset the, the, the offline impact? I think that's part of the future. The whole world is now trying to figure out the new normal and better ways to work. And it's, it's quite exciting. We can just um, take some guidance from Mark Andreessen, who is kind of one of the pioneers of the internet as the, the, one of the engineers who built the, one of the first internet browsers and who then went on to be the, the namesake of Andreessen Horowitz, now one of the top, I don't know, top five tech VCs in the world. So last June, almost a year ago now, he literally said that remote work can be the biggest change in his lifetime. Remote work is 
a side effect of the internet or it's made possible by the internet, but it might be more important than the internet itself. That's quite a mind blowing statement. The reason why he said that is because uh, Ali, you just mentioned Zoom for just to pick one brand, but the idea that technology can enable work to be democratized outside of the oligopoly that New York and the Bay Area used to have on the very best jobs in the, in the country and spread that out to not only other cities uh, in the US, but really to the whole world where people in Pakistan, in China, in Europe, in Africa, in South America can actually have a legit chance to perform those jobs and get those jobs. And that, that's just uh, awesome. And I think we're in the really early stage of this playing out. Of course, it will take a lot of time. Of course, a lot of technology needs to be built and technology needs to get better. And so does, and to your point, so does the physical space to, to enable this to happen. But I think that's the exciting part of when we say future of work is how does this mega trend uh, manifest itself um, all over the world, including in Shanghai, and how how that affects really everything? You know, it affects property values. It it affects uh, the taxation power of every district. It affects economic opportunity for everyone. Uh, it it really it affects it can affect everything. Now pulling it back to Shanghai, so that makes it even more interesting. That as we have said not much has changed so far. Um, I think one exciting thing I could share with, with uh, the listeners, it's kind of really uh, freaky cool that the world's biggest and best randomized controlled experiment in hybrid work. You would think that it would have been done somewhere in the West, the US or Europe, but no, it was actually done in Shanghai. So a massive shout out to Trip.com, which locally known as Xiecheng or C-Trip, uh, was the original brand. It's a huge online travel agency, kind of like Expedia or Booking.com, but it's a, a large Shanghai-based technology company with several thousand, if not more than 10,000 employees. Long story short, here's what happened. In the second half of 2021, uh, C-Trip did a trial of 1,600 employees, so pretty big sample size. That's a couple of the business units of C-Trip. So it represented all functions, including uh, technology people like software engineers, but also marketing folks, uh, finance folks, uh, BD folks. And they offered the employees the option, but not the obligation to work outside the office on Wednesdays and Fridays. So uh, people would call that a 3-2 hybrid model, three days in the office, two days outside the office. But again, uh, it's an option. So if you wanted to be in the office, you could, you're certainly welcome to be in the office. Uh, so if, we, if a company in the US made this offer, uh, what, what do you guys think would happen? Like uh, what percent of the employees would take the offer? 100%. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, some very, very high percent, right? You know, I think right now the headlines in the U.S. are more about uh, companies are 
failing to bring people back to the office. The latest anonymized key card data from U.S. large cities is that New York, Chicago, L.A., all U.S. cities have office occupancy below 50% right now. So here in Shanghai, uh, so you guys guessed 100%, right? <laughs> here in Shanghai, it was 30, 33% took up the offer, only 33%. This, so this is something very fascinating and uh, shows some great differences in attitudes and you, you might say culture. I think uh, one of the things that the researchers noted it's not so shocking in the sense that people might might have felt that by volunteering, they would affect their chances of promotion or the perspective of the bosses on the people who volunteered. They call that presenteeism, where people think you just have to be present in the office as a minimum job qualification or as a symbol of how enthusiastic you are about the company. So 33% of the 1,600 people volunteered. It was randomized. So 50% of the people were given this option. Basically, they just picked odd birthdays versus even birthdays. So if you're a person who had a birthday on an odd day, like uh, 3 or 13, you were given the option to work from home. Uh, even if you didn't volunteer and the the other 50 percent of course did not so that's the control group at the end of the day there was uh, the three major results are as follows so first of all in the the test group versus the control group there was a 35 percent reduction in attrition and a 12 percent reduction in absence days so here in shanghai i guess citywide I guess average attrition rates would be, you know, 10 or 20% between those two numbers. So if you could make a 35% reduction in your attrition rate, that's actually serious uh, money and serious efforts to retain and recruit employees. Uh, when you drill down into the details, of course, the people who were being affected are people with kids, people with long commutes. I mean, this is uh, not surprising at all. People basically love it. People love the flexibility. The second result was higher job satisfaction scores, uh, just very much related, that people just love it. And once you try it, you tend to start to love it. And the third one is that there was no impact on performance or promotions. So there was enough time. This was a six-month trial. There was enough time for one uh, annual performance review cycle. And there was no difference in the performance or promotion of the people who participated in hybrid versus the people who did not. And at the end of the day, what happened was based on these results, trip.com is now a fully hybrid company. So hybrid is now an official part of their business uh, strategy and business model. And now the whole company is on hybrid. If there are such clear benefits and if there are no obvious uh, negatives, will companies in Shanghai uh, increasingly adopt hybrid? One of the things, the only other big piece that hasn't been mentioned yet is uh, we didn't talk about cost saving, but of course, companies in China, it's a very competitive environment. All companies and all decision makers are looking for efficiencies. And so if you do have 
a large portion of your organization who can work outside the office from time to time and love it and don't suffer a loss of performance or productivity. In fact, productivity may even increase. Um, that will result in a real estate saving over the long term. Uh, or you could you could make it result in a real estate saving over the long term. And, uh, and real estate tends to be one of the major cost items of any company. So I think this is an interesting opportunity that um, people are seizing around the world, but not so much yet here in Shanghai. Most companies are adopting, outside of China, most companies are adopting hybrid, which means uh, both, you know, sometimes on site and sometimes off site. And so um, for people, especially the younger uh, employees to enjoy being in the office and enjoy being able to socialize with each other and physically uh, hang out together, uh, I think that's not being sacrificed. And I think that's one of the reasons why hybrid is uh, much more popular than uh, fully remote um, or fully in the office. One of the things that an office can really do is to deliver that in-person community and culture and collaboration opportunity. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the best product for doing that three meters of desk space uh, where you would sit there by yourself and work on something completely by yourself. That part, the desk space part, is where you could do it at home or somewhere else, maybe at a WeWork or maybe at a Starbucks or somewhere else. To make this happen in China, because another topic you raised was whether this is cultural or not, whether China's relatively lower amount of adoption of hybrid so far, whether that's cultural. Part of it is the level of trust that is has been built up between management and the rest of the organization and i think technology is something that pulls all of this together and enables it because what uh, china but also the rest of the world needs is uh, better technology tools to solve these new problems that the hybrid opportunity would create some of which we've uh, touched upon today. So I'm sure listeners could could be having a, their own mental list right now. Things like, well, performance reviews and things like who's in the office and who is not and when. Hybrid could either be the best of both worlds, but it could also be the worst of both worlds. And how do we make sure that it's the best and not the worst? But actually, I think only technology can do this. Uh, and I think the technology tools are not fully built yet. And I think the more that that becomes proven out or those tools get built, then I think it'll make it easier for companies in China to adopt, uh, adopt a hybrid. I think the number one missing piece right now, so for any entrepreneurs who are listening, uh, you should think about being the one to create this because it doesn't quite exist. I think what another thing that we saw in the C-Trip uh, case study is that people strongly chose to go into the office when their team also went into the office. 
And, and interestingly, they had granular enough data that to show that it wasn't even about the manager. They didn't care so much of whether their manager was going to be in the office on that Wednesday or that Friday, but they really cared as to whether their other teammates would be there or not. And they found themselves coordinating because the worst part of hybrid is when, it doesn't matter if you live in uh, the States or China, that today you make the effort to do the 45 minute commute to the office. So now here you are and you find that the people you need to meet with are not there, right? That's uh, the people that you wanted to collaborate with are not there. And that becomes a waste of your time and you feel even worse about it. So what we need is some kind of technology tools that helps us to solve that problem to manage and coordinate uh, who is in the office and when. And um, of course, the, uh, the coolest version will be predictive and uh, future-based. So if uh, Ali and Bryce and Dom, if we wanted to meet in Shanghai or we wanted to meet in Eastern Shanghai in Pudong, you know, what would be the best day to schedule a meeting and where? And if, the, if it could come up with automatic recommendations, I think this will be uh, part of the future. That's part of the hybrid um, technology that, that most companies are going to need. Uh, and we could optimize uh, who is where, which will help us to optimize that real estate footprint and hence uh, saving as much money as possible while having an, still having enough space for everyone. And um, the so-called hybrid roster, uh, who is in the office and when. Some countries in the world, including Singapore, they have been requiring employers to keep data on who is in the office and when. And so there's another another new problem created by um, work from home or hybrid is that um, is is even having the data on uh, on your office utilization rates. You know the number of times or uh, the amount of time that could be saved through virtual assistance when it comes to organizing meetings, especially when you have multiple people at a meeting across geographies, throwing in GPS data, mashing that with availability. Uh, with a little bit of virtual assistance would, would help save companies a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time. I'm just going to leave it on the table because because of the number of times we end up having to reschedule because someone's not available and and the, and there's just so much time wasted when, when you try to connect with people and, and, and see if they will be available at 5 p.m., 6 p.m., 7 p.m., etc. If someone can help solve that for, for, for most physical bricks-and-mortar type companies, that, that's going to be quite exciting because it's so dependent on the calendar it's microsoft's opportunity to lose i have a bunch of friends at microsoft but shame on you guys if you guys don't deliver this <laughs> um, but i think microsoft has a huge advantage here uh, google as well with their suite uh, you know the the gmail plus uh, google meetings and uh, Google Drive. Uh, you guys have probably noticed that they've rebranded it actually as Workspace. They've rebranded Gmail as Workspace or Google Workspace. Um, and so it's um, uh, Google is working on this. Microsoft is working on this. Meta is of course working on the next generation of this. Uh, Zoom and Slack are, the combination is another uh, com a competitor. But actually, guys, I don't know how much you guys have used Feishu or like Lark is the English name of Feishu. 
which is the started as the internal collaboration tool of ByteDance Group, but they have now productized and turned into an actual uh, business and uh, public-facing product. But for me, almost 100% of all the tech people that I've ever uh, discussed this topic with, uh, whether they're Chinese or not Chinese, but anyone who's ever tried <clears throat> Microsoft, Google, Zoom, Slack, and Lark, like it's almost 100% of people who say that Lark is the best, the best product, the best user experience. This just highlights how uh, the technology for hybrid work, uh, for the future of work, still needs to get built and it's still a, an open opportunity, but how China uh, may also wind up being a big player in this or even a winner in this, you know, Chinese uh Chinese companies are very competitive now at building awesome user experiences. What advice would you give our audience who might be interested in, in driving into the market here? Do you think that China is still a great place for entrepreneurs or are people saying that that ship has sailed and you should have come 10 years ago or you still think that there's opportunities? And what <laughs> what advice would you give uh, to those people that are indeed uh, passionate and interested about doing some interesting potential tech entrepreneurial experiences in, in China. Perhaps the number one mistake made by entrepreneurs globally is actually choosing a market that is too small. That's a data-driven uh, conclusion uh, from some studies that I've seen, choosing a market that is too small. And so one thing about China is that it's a little bit harder to make that mistake over here. It, uh, it really connects with what Ali was just saying about those second, third, and fourth tier cities. Uh, China has, what is it, 80, 80 cities with a million people um, or something like that. One thing to put it in perspective for everyone is I was just looking at uh, the coffee industry recently. Uh, so when I came here in the 90s, you know, it was almost 100% of people would say and fully believe that um, China is a tea culture. They would say, China, we've been drinking tea uh, for 2,000 years and coffee is awful and so bitter and uh, coffee, oh, coffee will never be popular in China. Uh, I think two years ago, uh, Shanghai became literally the world's number one city in terms of the number of coffee shops. Just zooming in on Starbucks, there were there are 800 odd shops in Shanghai. And I think the number in New York and Chicago is below 200 shops, Starbucks shops each in New York or Chicago. And so if we think about it as an entrepreneur, think about the fact that in China, now in first tier cities in China, we drink 326 cups of coffee per year, 326. So that's like three less than US. US market is 329 cups of coffee a year. Um, so, you know, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, it's pretty much at the West, Western level of coffee consumption. But guess what is the national per cup 
per, the national per capita cups. Six or ten. It's nine. It's oh nice. Wow, very nice, Bryce. Yeah, it's nine. And then in the second second tier cities, uh, it's two hundred and sixty. So it's kind of a no brainer, right? If you're an entrepreneur, uh, and you you know how addicting uh, coffee is, uh, it's just sort of inevitable that there's going to be quite a lot of growth in the coffee uh, industry in uh, second tier cities uh, and I'm definitely third tier and fourth tier cities. Uh, so this is just an example. I'm just using coffee to try to more colorfully illustrate what's happening here in China, that urbanization is still in the early stage that uh, has many implications for entrepreneurs. Fascinating. Ali, are we ready for the A-B test? We absolutely are ready for the A-B test. Dominic, are you familiar with the A-B test? Only in the data science uh, product management world. I better, you better tell me about your A-B test. It's very similar to the, to the A-B test that, that you would otherwise do on, on products. I'm going to shoot maybe around eight, nine uh, different words, phrases at you. Whatever comes to mind first, just feel free to respond with either of the two choices. So here goes. Shanghai or Taipei? Shanghai. Basketball or football? Oh, basketball, definitely. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this properly, but pancit palabok or beef noodles? Palabok, for sure. Palabok is a Filipino dish. Uh, it's like a, it's a very popular dish uh, throughout the country. It's uh, rice noodles with some uh, calamansi, uh, some pork crackle sprinkled on top, and this uh, orange sauce an orange sauce drizzled on top. It's just absolutely delicious. Can't find it anywhere in Shanghai though, unfortunately. I've been here for 16 years and I've seen three different Filipino restaurants come and go, um, but somehow there's there's not enough staying power. Maybe there's not enough people who uh, love Palabok. So the, the, the next one, I think I also know what the answer is, but we'll, let's ask, uh, mountains or the beach? Oh man, you know it, you know it. It's gotta be beach. Uh, work from home or work from office? Work from home. Uh, work from home or work from the beach? Work from the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Manila or Boracay? Oh, Boracay for sure. Best beach in Asia. Excellent. Uh, Starbucks or Manor? Manor. Manor coffee. Uh, Adam Neumann or Rebecca Neumann? Oh, I'm going to go with Adam. I'm going to go with Adam. Well, if it's an A-B test, I'm going to have to go with Adam. I've hung out with Adam, had dinner with Adam. I have not had the privilege with Rebecca. So uh, with uh, I'll go with Adam. Well, Dominic, uh, this has been a very fascinating podcast, uh, and we really appreciate the time for the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for um, shining a spotlight on Shanghai and supporting Shanghai. That's, that's awesome. Thanks, guys. Anytime. And thank you for everyone for joining us on today's episode. Join us in two weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.